Hello, and welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Welcome, listeners, and thank you for joining us for Into the Fire, a podcast by Burning Coal Theatre Company. I'm Lillian White, hosting this summer series um, on arts and politics. And today I'm speaking with Ben Cameron. Hi, Ben. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, just to start us off, could you talk a little bit about your background and your work, which is quite eclectic and expansive, but for those of our <laughs> listeners who are familiar with it. Yes, that's the polite way of saying I can't hold a job. Um, uh, as, I, as you probably know, I am a North Carolina native. Um, I first came to the arts in my undergraduate life, uh, being an alumnus of University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, and after a, a brief period teaching high school, went back to get my graduate degree in theater uh, at Yale. Um, subsequent to that, after that, I actually had a rather unforeseen trajectory, uh, trained as a dramaturg for whatever reason, was hired primarily to direct at a number of places, uh, taught back at my alma mater at Chapel Hill as well as at Virginia Tech before I found my way to the National Endowment for the Arts in the late 80s, where I was initially on the staff but ultimately director of the theater program. Uh, that transitioned me into the world of philanthropy. Subsequently, I went to a corporation that is now known as the Target Corporation, being Target Stores, it, that was part of the corporation when I was there. It was a bigger bit uh, where I ran their charitable giving for initially for the Twin Cities, but then for the Target Corporation. I went from there to TCG, uh, which is the National Service Organization for the Not-for-Profit Professional Theater, where I was the CEO for uh, between eight and nine years. Left there to be the program director at the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation uh, for the Arts. And then from there came to the Jerome Foundation in St. Paul five years ago. Uh, our jobs here uh, at Jerome, we were founded by an artist. Oh, I can show you this, but your podcast people won't see it. Uh, our founder was Jerome Hill, an Academy Award-winning artist. And I'm hoisting the Oscar right here because I brought it home in the office shutdown. Uh, an Academy Award-winning artist who was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, but spent much of his creative life in New York City as a filmmaker, also having been a composer, a playwright, a, a, a sort of photographer, painter, jack of all trades. And today what we do is we support emerging or early career artists in the state of Minnesota, reflecting his birthplace, and New York City, where he spent much of his creative life. So that's sort of the recap of the career. Far, probably far more than you wanted to know. I apologize. Oh, it's wonderful. No, thank you. Um, and what I, what I, what's really intrigued me in your public dialogues, which I will say I've mostly seen um, the talks you've given, I think all of them are since, are like they start around 2008 and move forward. So I've seen your, your um, thinking around crisis, <laughs> a lot, you know, financial crisis, the crisis that technology um, brought to the performing arts. And something that's really intrigued me is, is your thinking around the search for new paradigms or the recovery of, of old or alternative paradigms for organizations to use in thinking about themselves and their communities. Um, and one term that you've used that I really want to hear more about is civic allegiance. Um, and so I'm curious what civic allegiance means to you now, sort of how you arrived at thinking about that. Um, 
one example you gave was the Trey McIntyre projects um, in Boise and, and oh, uh, oh they're, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. really creative use of space and arrival in place. Um, does all this ring a bell? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I, this, the, the word allegiance threw me off. I, typically what I've said is civic agenda uh, as oh, opposed okay. to an artistic agenda. And so this was like, what does civic allegiance mean? I'm not sure I know. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Trey McIntyre and company was, um, for those people who may be listening who don't know, Trey was a, a, here is, a choreographer who works really out of a ballet-based tradition and for a number of years was a freelance choreographer who in 2008 decided that he wanted his own full-time dance company just as the Great Recession was hitting. Uh, and while a number of his donors at that point in time were quite anxious for him to settle in cities where he had worked before, like Boston and Houston and uh, Portland, Oregon, among others, he deliberately chose to create the company in Boise, Idaho. Uh, and what was really instructive for me about that choice he made uh, going to a place where he did not necessarily have a dance audience based in where there was no real support for dance. There was certainly not a kind of history of the work he did was that having made that decision, he decided to literally approach everything they did with fresh eyes about are there different ways for us to think about this and how do we think about it? Uh, so they didn't arrive with marketing brochures, they announced, they did a thing called Spurbans, which were spun more like flash mobs to draw people's attention. There, there's a whole string of things they did that I found deeply instructive. But at the core, what I also found really important was they went into this as part of a coalition that brought together a dot-com CEO, it brought together the sheriff, it brought together the football coach at Boise State, which is a nationally ranked power. And their common mission was they were going to make Boise a world home of innovation. And so while they positioned themselves in certain contexts was not with an artistic agenda, but with a civic agenda, that this is what our presence means for Boise. And what that really led the city council to do was to repurpose economic development money to make them Boise's economic cultural ambassadors and to take businessmen with them as they toured around the country and internationally to say, you have a vision of what Boise is. This is really what Boise is. Boise is a home of innovation. Boise is a cultural, vibrant center, et cetera. And it was out of that lens that they attracted a whole set of stakeholders and a whole set of a, a, a whole uh, raft of civic pride that had they said basically the reason we exist is to bring ballet to Boise, I'm not sure they would have had in the same way. So one of the inspiring anecdotes you may have heard me tell was, you know, two or three years after they settled in Boise, which is not a large city, it's a couple hundred thousand people, more the size probably of Greensboro than it is of, not, not as big as Charlotte. They were one of the five largest modern dance companies in America. Uh, and that when they left for their tour, and they did tour probably 25 or 30 weeks a year, but when they left on the tour, the city had put a big banner over the airport saying, Good luck on your world tour to Trey McIntyre Project, Boise's Cultural Economic Ambassadors to the World. And so there was a real civic gathering around them. You know, it's also interesting to me in total confession that the company no longer exists, which you may or may not be aware of. Trey said, basically, I, I called it the Trey McIntyre Project because I knew I didn't want to do this the rest of my life. And I got to a certain point and we did it. And I wanted to go on to other things. But 
He left the company in the black. He brought in choreographers from all over the world to look at his dancers. He negotiated free college educations for any dancer who wanted to stay and get an undergraduate degree because many dancers go straight from high school into professional dance and they'll go through that. So he was really thoughtful about how he ensured that his company was well taken care of. But I, I do think that it's also a harbinger of a different way of thinking because at least in my perception is uh, many artists now are increasingly interested in having an active expressive life that transcends a particular discipline or a particular structure and that being expressive artistically may be a more ephemeral moment than an institutional one. And that's actually something I think we should celebrate rather than deploy. Mm. So in all of those ways, I found the Trey McIntyre thing extremely yeah. helpful. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? What you just said, this, this idea of um, the ephemeral creative expressive moment, but this, or, or that taking precedence over the institutional, um, I don't know, heavyweight longevity. Yeah, I mean, th this has long been an, uh, of interest to me, especially in the dance field, because so many dance organizations are started because we believe in that choreographer's work. So let's, Merce Cunningham is a great choreographer. Let's come together to give him a company to make work. You know, Alvin Ailey's a great choreographer. Let's come together to give him the work. You know, Elizabeth Streb, who's on our board now in New York, uh, is a great choreographer. Let's assemble a company for her so she can make her own work. But then the question is, but at whatever point in time, whether Elizabeth says, I'm just done, or whether she passes on and, 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 or just physically can't do the work anymore, if the company was called to make her work, why do we need the company when she stops? You know, the first time I really remember hearing this, there was a great choreographer named Bella Lewitsky, who was in the late 80s, one of the people to really resist some of the changes being made at the National Endowment for the Arts. And she returned her NEA grant because she didn't feel in conscience she could take it given some of the objections going on around the NEA. And Bella folded her company uh, uh, in the early 90s by choice because she said, basically, I'm done. Uh, um, and in that moment, one of the things we are aware of, two things is, what is it that's the animating purpose that keeps us alive? And for me, any organization that chooses to outlive its founder, whether that's one year in or 50 years in, that's the moment that, that an organization becomes no longer an arts organization, but becomes an institution. Because the reason you're continuing to go forward is no longer to fulfill the artistic aspirations of the founders. You're going on for other reasons. And they may be civic reasons. They may be because we have a staff. They may be, there could be all sorts of reasons, but there's a different thing that informs you and drives you beyond the personality and the artistic impulses of the founding creative energy. Um, I do think that, that there, we're entering a, a chapter where more artists are, not only artists, we see it in career paths. People are less likely to have a 40-year career at a, at a corporation. People tend to change careers six or seven or eight times. And in that same way, I think what we're going to see among some artists at least is not a desire to institutionalize, is not a desire to say, I want to build a, an organization that will outlast me because frankly, once you make that decision, how you spend your time and the amount of time you have to make creative work totally changes but they really want to respond in the moment to what's most urgent and what they feel around them. Um, and so I, I, again, I think this is something that might actually be an asset to us, not only because it recognizes ongoing urgency, but 
one of the difficult things right now, as we know, is that there are more arts organizations than the philanthropic sector can adequately support, is one way to put it. And so one of the things we're going to need to be thoughtful about is how do we reconcile the size of the landscape with the resources available to that landscape? And that's a challenging moment. Um, for that reason, I've always said, anytime a leader changes in an organization, the first question that every organization has to ask itself is, why do we have to keep going? Not, not how do we get through the next month, but why do we have to go forward? What is it in our community that demands we keep going? You know, what is it that, that makes it urgent that we continue? And if we can't answer that, if it's just, well, because we have a building, or if it's, well, just because we have some people on payroll, I don't, for me, I don't feel that's an urgent and vibrant enough claim on resources and on the future to justify continuation. And mm -hmm. so I think there is a lot of reasons to continue. Museums, I mean, they, they house work to keep us, you know, uh, uh, somebody needs to keep the Mona Lisa in perpetuity. You know, that, that's, but for performing arts organizations in particular, locating and responding to the urgent now I think it's got to be woven into the fabric of every organization. And, and for, for us here at the foundation, that involves a deeper reflection, not only about what's your mission, but what are the core values? What's the ethical infrastructure that you exist to serve? You know, what do you stand for? Uh, and while many organizations I've seen are very articulate about the mission, I have seen a number of organizations who aren't clear about their values. And to be totally frank, when organizations get into big disarray, again, in my experience, it's rarely because people don't understand and agree to the mission. It's because there's a very different sense at work internally and externally about what the values are that the organization exists to serve. Mm. Wow. I'm sorry, I, I probably went way off topic on your question. Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how, how you're experiencing at the Durham Foundation or sort of how you're seeing the landscape in the field think about civic agenda and think about values and this big question of why um, in the midst of so many kinds of crises and in the midst of, you know, um, a grapple to survive, which means a lot of different things for some, it has different stakes. Survival has different stakes for different people and artists and institutions. Um, so what are you, how are you seeing this moment? What are you noticing? You know, uh, well, um, uh, I, I would say probably three things about the current moment. One is, um, of course, most arts organizations that we deal with are in uh, um, just a moment of profound dislocation. Uh, um, you know, we, we're having a sort of, some people are using the term twin pandemics, meaning there's a social pandemic about our new consciousness about racial equity and about white supremacy and structural racism, which has a, a, a drive and an impulse and a, a level of its own. And then, of course, we have the COVID crisis, which makes it, uh, which is a pandemic in a different sense, but which literally makes it impossible for many arts organizations to move forward in the ways that they have operated in the past. You know, the, the obvious example, which I don't need to say to you about man burning coal would clearly be, you, you can't ask an audience into your space. Uh, uh, and 
even if you can figure the way out there, it's far from clear that if you're a union company, the unions will give you permission to hire their workers and et cetera, et cetera. So what we're seeing in the, in the initial flush is uh, suspension of activities, uh, dramatic downsizing uh, of staff. So organizations have laid off, I've heard numbers ranging from 70 to 80 and sometimes occasionally higher percentage of their staff and workforce as they try to figure this out and a deep sense of reflection, but uncertainty about when we might be able to resume. I mean, one of the things, of course, you know about the, the COVID crisis is we thought we were moving back into reopening and now California shut back down again and, we, and people are saying it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So are we thinking we're going to open in spring of next year? Some theaters here locally are still holding on to that. Some theaters here have said, there is no way we're going to be back next spring. We're, we're shooting for what does it mean to open in September of 21. I'm now hearing from some people that's, that's too soon in their books. And, you know, so, so even the time frame about what we're going to have to do or how long we're going to have to weather this is unclear. I think at its most, um, What's the term I want? I think it is at its most potentially valuable. I think the questions people are, are, I hope are asking is, how is it that we continue to pursue our purpose and our values in this moment? I think the second question people I'm hoping are asking is, what are the things we're actually uncovering in this moment of, of wild experimentation and sometimes doing things we're not used to doing? But what are we uncovering that we might not want to let go of on the other side? Mm. You know, I, 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 um, I, I teach a class at, at my alma mater at Yale still. And this year I had to teach it online and through Zoom like this. And it, it's, a, it's a kind of, um, I go in, I, I get them for four or five hours at a time, three times a year. So it, it's like an intense thing with them. And so, but all three classes I had to do. And coming out of it, I said to the administration, I said, you know, I really was, I hated the idea I was going to have to do it. And yet at the same time, there were things in that class. It was one of the richest experiences I've ever had because I was seeing my students in their homes. And so I was seeing who's neat and who's sloppy. What's the art that they have on the wall? Who's got a pet? Who doesn't have a pet? Who? There was a level of personal intimacy and understanding that that gave me that I don't get when I stand in front of a classroom. Uh, I think we are different people when we're at home versus when we're in a classroom as well. Uh, and then in addition to that, because they were spread all over the country, we started every class and I would say, let's just take 15 minutes and let, let check in with each other. What's going on with each of you? And I, I was privy to a kind of emotional texture exchange that, I, that they would have had having dinner together in the Hall of Graduate Studies or walking to class together, but I never would have been privy to. So for me, there was a depth of emotional reveal and honesty and intimacy with those students that I've never had with students before. And so partly I'm going, okay, when we get back to the classroom, how do I not lose that because of its richness? And so I'm hopeful that organizations are saying, in this moment, whether we like it or not, what are we finding that we want to keep hold of and then I think the third thing, which is really a hard question is, my belief is this is not a one-time moment. My belief is that this notion, and, and I'm not the first to say this by any means, that the future holds the possibility of repeated and ongoing seismic disruption. And so how is it we are baking in 
a capacity or thinking about retaining a capacity to respond, not just the change, but to disruption in an ongoing basis. Because, you know, we dodged bird flu, we dodged uh, Ebola. Well, okay, let's say we get through COVID and we find a vaccine, there will be another disease or there will be a climate change event or there will be terrorism, there will be something and we'll be disrupted again. And so how is it we're thinking about ongoing capacity, not for stability, but for resilience? so that we're able to respond to the unforeseen in expectation of it occurring more frequently. Mm. I hope I'm making any vague sense at all. (laughs) Okay. It's really great, yeah. Um. You know, and and I will say to you, to the current moment, I think what I'm hearing from folks is that they, that there's probably a a four-stage journey that people are gonna be going through in arts organizations. That the first step right now, which people are in is uh, connect, connect and, and be in conversation with or be in connection or, or, or maintain a presence and consciousness with your audience and potentially new audiences. I think the second phase is really about a depth of planning and reflection that's going to either need you lead you to recommitting to the path you have been on or reimagining what that path looks like. I think then there's going to be a third phase about how do we plan and ramp up to get back to that either recommitment or that reimagination. And then the fourth thing is going to be repositioning on the, the, the far end. And that that's going to be a multi-year, multi-phase journey that won't be over 12 months from now, even if, if we could. I mean, as, as you know, if they found the vaccine tomorrow, you, you, you've got people to cast and rehearsals and a repertoire to determine and a tech staff to get back in. Well, vaccine tomorrow doesn't mean we're up and running 30 days from now. You know? So it's a long recovery ramp. And also it's a recovery ramp, even in the wake of a vaccine, before we're confident that people will feel comfortable coming back in a public place. You know, are people going to feel comfortable doing that or not? You know, and so how do we phase in our expectations for recovery over a longer term than, oh, okay, we're back. And so now we're going to be back in a year. I, I just don't think that's realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and um, the artistic community as well, there's a long recovery ramp for, you know, actors, designers, whoever being able to, feeling safe coming back as well, being yeah. able to have the security, the light, you know, the living, the security in their lives to be yep. able to create um, generously and well. And um, it's, it's both. I mean, I think we're going to learn some interesting things this summer by the few experiments out there. I mean, I, I know everybody's talking about Barrington Stage, for example, which is launching a season this summer with the union's permission, but primarily grounded in solo work to get to some of what, what you, you're alluding to. Uh, but we're gonna learn a lot about audience hunger and willingness to convene, even though they've pulled out, they, they've, they've arranged a, a scale of seating to reflect social distancing. So it's a much diminished capacity, but we'll see. You know, um, I, I'm wondering whether there is going to be I wonder what we'll learn from the airline industry, for mm-hmm. example, you know, because a lot of airplanes are, people are demanding in some airlines, no middle seats. And some people are flying packed planes with masks on and still getting on the planes. You know what I mean? So, and we'll, but the number of flights has been significantly diminished. So how quickly are airlines going to be able to resume fuller schedules with fuller planes? I, I think we're going to learn some things. 
Yeah. Um, so, but, but I don't know that we can foresee that. And, and I do think that there, it may well be that at a certain point we get to a point where we're saying, yeah, I'm happy sitting next to somebody with a mask on. If there's a, if there's a, a sort of prophylactic that makes it less fatal for the, for the disease than we fear it is, but makes it more manageable, will people accommodate themselves just like we've accommodated ourselves now without particularly thinking about it even while we all grumble we all go through those tsa lines sometimes for an hour or two hours whereas before this you know you go back far enough you could show up for a flight 30 minutes before the flight and not have to go through anything but now we just accept that are there things we will just accept with the passage of time that may feel alien to us now but that we'll grow to accept because we recognize the common value hard to know yeah yeah um, well, we just have a couple minutes left, which is... Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know, I've me too. On, no, I've rattled on too long. I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, I'm curious uh, if you, you've spoken a lot to the opportunities to learn and sort of in this experience of having so much stripped away from us, there is an opportunity to see a new, you know, like you were describing the, um, the emotional connections between your students that you now have access to or had this spring. Um, I'm curious what examples of abundance or opportunity or responsibility and duty do you see? Just because there's, there's such a, a scarcity mentality and a lot of, you know, very justified fears right now. Um, well, you just say there's no scarcity of fear. There's a lot of fear. <laughs> I mean, quite frankly, you know, I mean, I think there's, I think right now among the things we have in abundance, we have an abundance of passion. We have an abundance of energy. We have an abundance of commitment uh, to, to change. I think we have an abundance of hunger for the arts, quite frankly. I mean, the amount of time people are spending on Netflix and on streaming and watching not the news but offering fictitious artistic expressions is phenomenal the appetite for the arts right now as a as a as something to do in occupy our times is probably at an all-time high uh i think another thing that is an all-time high right now is our awareness of the increasing polarization that drives us as a country right now and mm -hmm. how wider and wider and wider that gulf is getting. Uh, whether you're defining the gulf racially or by political party or by religious affiliation, I mean, there are a number of, of schisms within that, but we're getting more and more polarized. Uh, I'm always reluctant to dictate what people should do or what their responsibility is. And, and frankly, uh, my reluctance stems from two things. One, I, I can't know the realities of the communities in which people operate because I don't live there. Uh, and my other core belief, though, really is that the field is stronger because we're not all the same, you know, because we have a different, you know, you go into a vibrant theater community like we have here and we have socially engaged theaters and we have theaters primarily around amusement and entertainment. We have African-American theaters. We have Asian-American theaters. We have Shakespeare theaters. We have children's theaters. And the fact that people operate differently and see their missions and purpose differently and see their values differently and see their core reason for existing differently is something we should celebrate rather than say, no, 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 every theater needs to do whatever. I do think in this time, the real issue therefore becomes about clarity and intentionality and really owning what you stand for. And in this moment of polarization, 
I think arts organizations really sort of have three choices, uh, all of which I applaud. Uh, one of them, I think, is it's time to call people out. You know, it's time yeah. to, to let people know where we have gone wrong and call them out and call, uh, uh, call inequities for what we see. That's different than calling people in. Because I think when you call people in, what you're really doing is you're saying, you're asking the question. And if you're genuinely calling in, you have a vested interest in hearing alternative points of view and having hard conversations, not just getting different people in so you can tell them why they're wrong, but really organically calling them in to promote a kind of conversation. And there are other groups that just call together and sidestep some of these issues at all. And, and do I think there's huge value in sitting in an audience with people that are very different than I am politically, socially, sexually, all sorts of reasons, and laughing at the same thing and crying at the same thing and sitting through a musical comedy together and finding that common organic sense of joy to be a human being? I do. And I think that in a community, we want access to all three. I just think we need to be crystal clear about what it is that we think our role in that equation is. Because especially I, I often see either people dismissive of the call together function or people pretending to call in, but really what they're doing is calling out. They want a different audience so they can tell them how wrong they are. And I think there's just great organic value in owning deliberately and proclaiming what we exist to do. You know, I, I know we're over time, but this will be the last thing I'll say. I do think that the one place we have failed as an organization, both to build, uh, as a field, but individual organizations is to be transparent about our values. Mm. Uh, I, I think, you know, when I go into the, I've always used the example when I go to the YMCA, which is where I'm really loyal, I, I go in and in the locker room and over the pool and in the weight room, there's a banner that says responsibility, community. They tell me what they stand for. And I know that unlike 24 hours fitness, which stands for being open 24 hours. Okay. I know ethically what they stand for. Mm -hmm. And if we're serious about engaging people, what would it mean? If you walked into a theater and you saw on the wall diversity, community, what if you saw the two or three things that theater stood for, would that inspire you to support them in a different way? Would it attract people that might believe that they don't have common ground with you? Would it lead to a different kind of connection to your community? I think it would, but I think that requires us to be crystal clear about what those values are and then unafraid to proclaim them publicly. Have you seen examples of either theaters or other, you know, gyms, whatever, that go a step further? Because I am I think about how much, how easy it is in a way to state your values, whether it's on your social media or it's on your, the wall of your building. But how do you, how do you go a step further in really embedding your, your team, your public, your whoever, and how do you practice those? Well, I think three things about values. One is, I, I think, well, uh, uh, number one about, about your core values is, and I'm talking about core values. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think a core value permeates every part of the organization. So a core value is, if it's a core value for the artist and not a manager, it's and not the managers, it's not a core value. Uh, so it permeates the organization. The second thing I think is a core value is properly defined because you're rejecting its opposite. And so you're making a choice at the expense of something else. So when people say excellence is a core value, I always say, uh, not really, unless you can establish for me that you can meaningfully dedicate yourself and viably run a company 
based on bad work. You know, excellence is a given. Your audience expects you to strive for excellence. That's not a choice you can make. That's a given in a competitive environment. But what are the things you are choosing in this moment at the expense of something else? And then the third thing is I think you can only have two or three of them. And, and for me, the values spring. I, I always say to groups, you know, it, it, the trap about, about identifying your values is to be rhetorical and say, what do we want to stand for going forward? rather than saying, what are the things in our past that have so deeply nourished us and deeply fed us that we know in those moments that our, our work is fulfilled? And so I think rightfully understood the values, unless you're going to totally transform the organization, the values reveal themselves often as a pattern, much like, you know, I, I use the example, if you've ever woven a loom, when you're throwing the shuttle, you can't see the pattern as you throw the, the, the shuttle. You can only see them what has already been woven. And so I think your behavior and the nourishment of the past reveals itself to you. I think being clear about those values has the additional advantage, in my experience, that once proclaimed, your board will begin, you'll begin to recruit boards based on their values, not merely for the size of their checks. People will come forward to be hired based on their alignment with your values. And with time, your hires, your board, your thing increasingly reinforce that values because that's the source of their attraction. So again, I think the real, the, the, the crystalline clarity is about trying to identify and reduce to two or three because you can't have 10 values and serve them all meaningfully. Um, and, and like anything else, there will be times they'll come into conflict. Maybe not all will go at once, but your audience will also let you know mm -hmm. when you're not living them. And that's a real moment of reflection we have to own. It, it was always interesting to me when we, we used to do this in a, when I was at TCG and asked people to define core values, how hard it was for people to define their own core values. And they were like, well, God, I don't know. I mean, we see blah, blah, blah. But when you would ask them to define the core values of a different organization, they were like, oh, please, they stand for blah, blah. I mean, they saw it like that, you know? And so on some level, Part of what might be interesting is to ask your existing audience what they think you stand for, because they will see whether you've intended it or not, what you have been standing for by what they perceived and, and, and what that's meant to them. Sorry, I just pulled my earphones out. So uh, I, I do think that that's the, the practice. And at some point you may find, you know, right now with the foundation, one of the things we're looking at very deeply is when I came, we based our, our planning and values. And before we even launched new programs, we clarified our, core, our three core values, uh, which we clarified as uh, uh, innovation, given that our, um, uh, our founder was an innovative and experimental, experimental filmmaker. Uh, we defined one of our core values as humility, which surprised a lot of people and has a very specific meaning to us. And we defined the third as diversity. And right now we're in the middle of a conversation about, well, do we mean diversity? Do we mean equity, diversity, or inclusion? Do we mean all three? Do we mean, what do we mean by that? And it right. may be with the passage of time, those things will rightfully change and adapt and morph, or they may not. So they're not necessarily ossified at the moment of definition, but I think they are measured against how you've lived, not how you've said. Mm -hmm. And so it's a monitor for your behavior, not a rhetorical set of aspirations that you never consider as you're actually doing the work mm -hmm. you know, on a very literal level if you come ever come to see our board our officers you walk into our 
office and the first thing you see is our boardroom which is encased in glass and on the door and the boardroom in big letters it says diversity innovation humility and anybody walking into that room is reminded before we even do anything this is what we stand for and what's going to guide us and what's to come and we mm -hmm. put it in all our guidelines we ask in all our evaluations to what degree do we fulfill those things or not i mean it's it's the ongoing reference point as much as what did people do with the money right so, it's a, it, so for us that's how we prefer so. wow well thank you so much ben sure. it's been really a treat to sure please ship some north carolina barbecue to minnesota <laughs> i miss barbecue i mean real barbecue you know what i mean more Absolutely. than i can say yeah are you a raleigh native no i grew up in darlington south carolina it's about two oh. hours I know Darlington. Uh, I, of course, I grew up in North Carolina, as you know, and going to Myrtle Beach was the big place to go, and relatives in yep. Greenville, and <laughs> debate tournaments in Columbia. So, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm from High Point originally. So, anyway, yeah. thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much.